Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Yeah, whatever you prefer. We can do an audio-only version. We do publish a oh, YouTube you... version as well. Oh, sweet. Like, okay. yes, that's... People, people generally listen instead of, like, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll just turn some of these into, like, preview clips or something. They can only stare cool. at this so much before they get sick and tired of it. So it's Yeah. yeah they come for the like beard. Like, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I get like, uh, I, despite being in Silicon Valley, our internet connection is crappy. We have awful, awful broadband. Partly because just partly because of the particular spot I live, we have like I live up on a hill, and then behind me there's like an open area, and then a, a PG&E, our local utility, has a substation back there, and all the poles have to go through the PG&E facility, which means like no one wants to string fiber through because they got to you know deal with the utilities. So we have we have Xfinity. Which like like just just not trash, you know? Yeah, that's what I got. They're pure fiber trash. To the node. They're not fiber to the door. Fiber to the node. Yeah. Happy note. Well, we're I live. have fiber to my house, so that's really sweet. And then one last little thing: you live Show in off. the tech hub of the world. I live with 180 acres worth of cattle and literal bird <laughs> shit all around. Me. I have one gig fiber internet. So with that, let's that's go ahead and sweet. kick it off. <laughs> Oh man, this is going to be the weirdest intro ever because we're already having the conversation. So welcome to Adopting Zero Trust or AZT. Today, as with you've probably noticed to our wonderful listeners, we're constantly changing up the format. This week, we have a academic, someone with an intense background on the federal side, and really we're going to hone in on... I don't want to say in a pessimistic tone, but maybe a lack of innovation in government around cybersecurity. So that's the focal point of what we're going to be chatting through today. But so AJ comes to us with a significant amount of background. He's currently a fellow over at Stanford University. He's a director, lead cybersecurity over at Turtle Rock Studios. And for you gamers out there, if you're familiar with Back for Blood and Left 4 Dead, that's those folks. Did a stint with NIST and, of course, a security director of cybersecurity policy with the White House. So just a few things. I probably heard of some of those. Probably has a really good understanding of that divide between high-tech organizations who need to be on the cutting edge and then also the federal side. So that brings us back to our conversation focal point today, which, again, is really about what innovation in the federal government space around cybersecurity looks like, which is fantastic because right now we are running off the tail end of the new national cybersecurity strategy, which puts some of the onus on software developers, vendors, service providers to be more secure. So they're taking more of a potential carrot versus a stick approach. But what that also does is also emphasize how much energy and focus needs to be put into cybersecurity. So they're clearly extending either that stick or carrot. They're trying to build those partnerships even greater with the private sector. But that's that's where we are today. So AJ, I'd love for you to give yourself a little bit of an introduction, making sure that I don't accidentally call up the wrong school again. Yeah, let's <laughs> learn a little bit more about you. 
Yeah, no, well, th- thanks for having me, guys. It's good to be here. Yeah, as you said, I, I lead a, a research and teaching program on, on cyber policy at Stanford, where I've been camped out since 2017 after moving west from Washington, D.C., where, as you indicated, I had a, a bunch of experience in, in the federal government, including Capitol Hill. I worked in, in the Senate, on uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee staff. And, you know, fairly typical D.C. fashion, I worked at Think Tank, too, so I've kind of you know, hit, I've got, like, you know, the concert tee, you know, DC experience with all my stops, you know, on, on the back. And yeah, now, now I focus my time on, on research and teaching. And then I do just do some consulting here and there for companies who are, who are thinking about some of the problems that we're going to talk about today. Excellent. Love it. So just kind of jumping straight into it. If you had to sum up the current systems and your understanding based on your experience dealing with that federal side, you know, how, how realistic is it to say, that there is a pure lack of innovation versus it's just such a monstrosity of a beast to be able to move things forward in regards to cybersecurity and infrastructure around that. Yeah, well, I would say there's an awful lot of innovation. It just oftentimes happens at a slower pace. It can be difficult to scale, right? So, you know, one agency or another agency may have, you know, some great idea for how to you know, streamline their their IT operations. You'll bring new services to customers, and stakeholders, defend their systems more effectively. But you know, it can be difficult to scale that learning across the federal enterprise. And then the biggest reason why is inertia. You know, it, it's it can be easy to pick on government for being you know slower than the private sector. Although I think in many cases the private sector is not always you know not always fast when it comes to adopting mm-hmm. new technology. It really depends. But the federal government has you know this 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 the, these layers of legal and regulatory requirements for how it procures IT, how it manages IT, how it pays for IT. And so, you know, the, the people who are, are making procurement decisions, the people who are operating IT and OT, I should say, you know, within the federal enterprise, they have a really hard job. And, and so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, and inertia has an awful lot to do with it. Again, there's just a lot of, of requirements and bureaucracy oftentimes imposed by Congress that, that the executive branch, the federal government has to navigate. So yeah. real quick on that note, some of the things you're talking about, about speed and, and ease or lack thereof of change from the government side and vice versa, you know, I, it's spot on having a government background myself and having sat in many things to see this, but I still find it, it's always... It's always amazing to me that the industry, the private sector can come up with some good ideas. There's a couple of early adopters, obviously early, you know, getting things going, but nothing really starts to get towards that wonderful S curve economics of adoption power curve there until the government itself comes down and starts making it a buzzword. Right. I think that's probably partially indicate indicative of our, our larger scale economic actually being tied to government procedures in general, right? Whether we claim to be or not, but, you know, point in case, like with zero trust as a whole, there's been companies for a couple of years that have been touting the construct, even pre pre executive order, but nobody's really paid much attention to it until the executive order came down and really said, Hey, this is a concept. And I mean, you and I both know it's still going to be years <laughs> or longer before the government officially validates what that truly means across the globe, minor standards now, major things later. But, you know, kind of your thoughts on, on 
that adoption curve, you know, the government may still be slow, but once they decide to take some kind of notice of whatever that new thing is, regardless of how long it takes them to get there afterwards, you know, I, I personally tend to see the private sector ramp up massively quickly. Your thoughts on, on kind of that take on business once the government says go, the whole world snaps to or not? I, I think, yeah, I, I think you've got to distinguish big companies from little companies in terms of how quickly they adopt technology and also the, the, the particular sector that a company is in. All those factors can all affect how how readily they can they can and quickly they can adopt new technology. So, you know, in some areas like financial services, for example, which is a highly regulated sector, you know, we just had you know a couple banks collapse here in the United States, including one you know in our neighborhood out here, Silicon Valley Bank. It's a reminder that you know that that as frustrating as you know regulations can be. I mean, they 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 you know when when done properly, that they they do serve a purpose and. Banks, because of that regulatory overhang, are more conservative when it comes to adopting new technology because they have to make sure that new technology is going to allow them to continue to comply with with the various laws that they're subject to. So, for example, you know, record keeping requirements that that exist to to, to police insider trading. You know, a, a bank that wants to adopt a new technology has got to figure figure out okay, how do we you know, is this consistent with, you know, can, can we adopt this new technology and still have it be consistent with our legal requirements? Other sectors that, you know, aren't as, as regulated, you know, have a lot more freedom. So you think big tech companies that, you know, they, they you know, they're, they tend to be quicker adopting new technology, partly because of their management culture, but also because they're just less regulated and have more degrees of freedom. And then, you know, in terms of, of you know, that that's, you know, just a sector comparison. And then, you know, big, big companies and small companies, I don't, I'm not sure you can generalize it. It's easier for bigger, small companies to adopt your technology, but I do think that there's a resource factor as well as a, a management kind of a culture factor. You know, s- small to medium sized businesses obviously typically face more cost constraints. So technology that's all things equal more expensive to implement, maybe, maybe more difficult for a small to medium sized enterprises, but you know, for, for technology that, that I mean, is cost effective, small to medium sized enterprises may have the advantage of having sort of fewer decision points, fewer sort of, you know, bureaucratic veto points on change and could move faster. So I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think it's safe to generalize that yes, the government is tends to be slower than the private sector, but I also would characterize that as a, you know, a, a trend, not not a law of physics. Then, when it comes to you know your point on adoption, you know there's sort of a, a correlation causation question here. It could be that so in some cases, when the government adopts a new technology, it, it sends a signal from the marketplace that that this technology is safe. Or in some cases, that actually if you don't use this technology, right, you may subject yourself to liability risk. Multi-factor authentication is an example, right, where, you know, the government's pushing this as a matter of policy and itself has implemented it. I think now there's sort of a collective zeitgeist that, yeah, if you're not, if you're, if you're a company and you have sensitive data, business operations, you're not, you're not using two-factor, multi-factor authentication, you're, you're probably not up to snuff when it comes to meeting industry standards. But also yeah. the government adoption could, could also just be that, look, I mean, they're, they're following trends in the marketplace too. And so it's not that the government's causing, you know, the market to adopt it. It's actually the government's part of that market and part of the trend of broader adoption. Yeah, I could agree with that. that. That's definitely good insights. So kind of thinking about, you know, adoption paths, I've, I've personally consulted with some fortune 50 companies. I've worked with a lot smaller companies than that. And to your point, 
you know, that there's a lot of things that obviously go into that hurdle in the decision-making process. You know, it's more than just money, it's people, it's, it's, you know, who's been there for 20 years and has an idea that this works better than that doesn't want to change versus who comes in and is able to make changes when and where applicable, you know, the, the, who's the better spokesman for whatever the new construct is, as well as being able to get the money. But yeah, I've, I've seen fortune 50 companies that have two people in their sock and managed services as a primary. And then I've seen companies that are lucky to break 750 that run a 24, seven, 365. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's just a matter of prioritization and principle, right? You know, it's not like the one running the MSSP is technically getting less. They've just prioritized how they want to handle it differently. And that, that's fine. You know, if, if it gets you at least the same check boxes, whether you're compliance driven or compliance and security driven, then props to you, I guess. So no, that's pretty good stuff. So I have a curiosity question. So on around your, your gaming background, and maybe we're a little mm. early to ask about this, but I am very curious. <laughs> so, you know, early on before we kind of kicked off the recording, you were talking about some of the hurdles that you were more or less hired to in, indirectly impact and overcome because of the merger of the gaming with or the buyout, I guess, probably more aptly from Tencent. Um, can you kind of elaborate a little bit more around kind of what that meant for you and some of the hurdles that you've probably had to see or overcome in respect to your security posturing and, and all the regulatory junk that you've obviously had to deal with because of that Chinese presence? Well, to me, the experience has reinforced how there, there's a, an incredible diversity of IT environments out there. And you know, a you know, the, the 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 IT environment within a gaming studio is way different than you know an environment in a bank, for example. The tools are different, the workflows are different, and you know the the challenge from a security perspective is you know regardless of you know the company, how do you how does one how does management identify risks? Decide what level of risk to accept or not. You know, decide where to, you know, invest in risk mitigation. And you know that that is that process is ultimately a human. Come back to your your, your point earlier about people, right? I mean, it, it, that that's a people driven process. You know, there's a lot of hype around you know AI tools helping to you know helping decision makers make more informed decisions about their risk posture, but even then, you know, humans are still going to be the ones making decisions. You know, management culture, management leadership is, I think, by far the most important factor. You know, whether it's a video game studio, whether it's a bank, whether it's you know, small, you know, you know, grocery store business, right? In terms of of, of 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 managing risk, any risk, but especially IT risk. No, well said. So on that journey, some of the things that you know, you, you once again, fair points about infrastructure i think these are key things for people to understand is back to the one of the reasons why elliot and i are doing this because no one's journey is going to be the same uh, going down the zero trust rabbit hole or any security rabbit hole and if you're trying to take a model from company a to copy pasta company b simply because you have the same dollar signs or you happen to be in the same industry vertical good luck right but you know there are obviously lessons to be learned so in in your journey here a little bit from the it side with the gaming company how does that kind of impact y'all from the idea of you know zero trust or or better security postures especially with the international presence like i mean what are what are some of your maybe key concerns or some of your key findings that you think are have been pretty impactful along that part as well knowing infrastructure is way different than financial services to your point and and some of these people i'm imagining 
given what I know about the engineers I work with and programmers, they don't like to come to the office unless they have to. So there's a lot of potential remote stuff. There's a lot of potential PII for what y'all are doing. And I would say given one last thing, the success of what the company has done in the past, there's probably a lot of people who are potentially actively engaged in trying to exploit something for insights or other stuff. So anyway, <laughs> all that to say, compared to financial services, which is, you know, they're there, they understand how to stop web injects, all this other crap. But how does that impact you from a gaming infrastructure and that cultural mentality to overcome that from doing things zero trust-esque and stuff of that nature? Well, I'll say, you know, we, we, the, the IT leadership team uh, within the company is, is, is first rate. And, you know, the, the, you know, the culture of a gaming studio is, is you know, this will be a, maybe a little bit of a theme, is, is unique. You know, I mean, you know, compared to a bank, for example. At, at a studio, you know, I, I would summarize it. It's, it's a workforce of creatives, right? So these are, you know, people who are developing narratives for games, people who are you know, designing, you know, worlds and vehicles and weapons and character skins and all that kind of cool stuff that makes a game, you know, visually appealing with a you know, compelling narrative and, you know, a, an intuitive, you know, gameplay. Um, yeah, those, those, those and, and your creatives, you know, I mean, it, it, there, I think there's a constant sort of, and, you know, I would say healthy, you know, tug of war between, you know, the need to facilitate creativity, the need to eliminate, you know, sort of friction and transaction costs to people you know, doing their jobs. And then of course, you know, you know, making sure that, that the systems are, are appropriately locked down, that, you know, that to your point, you know, adversaries can't, you know, can't get in, whether they're malicious insiders or, you know, outside threat actors, you know, I mean, that, 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 that's actually a challenge that exists for really any organization that, that, you know, that, that wants to adopt zero trust. And this again, comes back into sort of the management cultural factor. What, how one goes about, you know, implementing zero trust in a video game studio in the federal government, you know, pick your 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 sector. It's going to look different, and you know, it it, it, it again, I think it all, all comes back to management and leadership culture. So, I mean, with that kind of in mind, I think for some of the listeners, it's important to highlight that minus the fact that you're tied to to a Chinese entity and there's some regulatory requirements there. Y'all, as a company, are are more or less kind of pure power play, private DIY, that there's not probably a whole lot of blatant rules and regulations for what makes you you other than just normal standards, I imagine. And so back to financial services, you know, there's a lot of regulatory things there that keep them what they are, that security standards, implementations, interactions with ISACs, government entities, all that other stuff that, you know, if they miss a day doing such and such, then they they get obliterated, they get fined, they get brought out in the news, they get shamed, whatever, right? But for a company like y'all, I imagine, you know, that there's probably a higher level of just self-ownership of this process to make things better, right? You you kind of look at it from a, a lens of what makes sense for us versus what the government's enforcing us to do. Is, is that fairly accurate as a whole? Yeah, well, you know, there's, I mean, there are, so, you know, in, in the case of Studio, you know, we're subject to a national security agreement that the company negotiated with, with the Department of Justice and the Department of Treasury, you know, under, you know pursuant to this, the CFIUS, this foreign investment review process as a result of the, the Tencent 
acquisition. The, the details of the of the national security agreement are confidential. I can't go into it really any, any details about them. But you know, they're 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 reasonable. You know, and I think you know if you, maybe taking a step back, um, really, I think the question, you know, the, the big policy question is, okay, un, under what circumstances are we as a country comfortable with a private actor operating under purely private economic motivations make risk decisions versus, okay, are there circumstances where either we don't trust the private sector to make the right decision, or maybe there are other factors that, that, you know, that are, that that are in play that where, you know, a public policy view of what is an acceptable level of risk may be different from what, the, what what the, the company does, and so you know, to take to take critical infrastructure as an example, right? So th- think about you know uh, uh, the electricity subsector of our economy, right? Huge. I mean, we all rely on, and you know that that's a it's a it's a pretty heavily regulated sector. Although I will say, cybersecurity was is a relatively late arrival in terms of regulatory focus. Let's say last fifteen years or so, with with greater focus, and you know the reason. You know, the reason why we may not, quote unquote, trust a utility, most of which are private, you know, privately owned to make the right risk decision is because the, the difference between so if, if, if a, the power goes out, the company suffers a loss of revenue. That is a loss that they, they are able to internalize, right? They, the companies are, okay, we, we get this. On the other hand, like the costs to society are much bigger than that. So big that you know why? Why would a rational utility factor that bigger cost, which doesn't affect them, it affects their customers, into their internal invest risk mitigation investment decisions? And by the way, they may conclude: Look, if if, if it gets so bad, we'll just go bankrupt, right? So again, why would we? Why would we pay? You know, before to mitigate if in the end we won't ultimately be responsible for paying the costs and it's those kinds of problems that where, where i think regulation is is, is is advisable now you know figuring out how to craft regulations that are are proportional to the problem and tailored to the problem that the regulations are, are, are trying to solve is, a, is a, another matter you know it's possible it's eminently possible for there to be a need for regulation and for government to screw up, you know how the regulations are designed and implemented. You know that's that's. But there are always going to be circumstances where you know companies aren't going to internalize the cost of the risk decisions. And in those cases, you know maybe maybe there's a need for government. Well, it's kind of funny because I think on our our very last episode that we just recorded, we kind of went down this a little bit, and you know one of the analogies or similarities and hopes of what we're seeing now was with like the banking industry with respect to credit card fraud and debit card fraud, pick a flavor, right? And that that's a privately regulated decision around what they decided to do originally around, you know, if your card gets popped for 10 bucks, you're not going to hire a lawyer. You're not going to hire an investigator, right? But they've made that part of their business risk decision because they know long-term, you know, a $10 pop turns into a million dollars, turns into $10 million kind of thing from the same threat actor. So they took ownership of the fraud, reimburse you for what's there, and then they go out and do the larger investigation with whoever their LE counterparts are to, in order to do that stuff. And then as part of their own internal, depending on the size of the bank, you know, they may or may not have already done some of that legwork before giving it over to FBI or whoever. But that that's slightly different in respect to, when, like you mentioned, if the power goes out or if the gas <laughs> gets shut down and uh, we don't have any gas pipelines flowing for whatever reason, you know, you're right that that's that's a little bit different risk assessment from a cost benefit analysis that they've done. And I agree from a regulatory perspective, it makes a lot more sense 
for those critical infrastructure type things to have that tie-in. I think that's the other thing for people to understand is that when it comes to critical infrastructure key resources, like you mentioned, there is a lot of regulatory things that apply to the uptime and availability of those types of things and those solutions specifically. So that way day-to-day life moves on. When the pipeline went out, that obviously impacted gas prices nationally and then eventually globally for a couple of weeks. And that was uh-huh. one single pipeline, right? Stuff coming down to Houston and or up from Houston rather. And that's what really stunk here in central Texas. It wasn't like we were getting that fuel, but because of the lack of stuff going out, the state had to compensate and supply to push things a different route. So, you know, even the state that was producing but not consuming still got impacted by something as simple yeah. as that. And the other part was it wasn't like the pipeline itself was really down. It was billing infrastructure to yep. support that really was ultimately <laughs> impact. And that's what so I'm saying all this because that's kind of what I think got us into where we're at with all these recent regulatory requirements over the last couple of years. Yeah. And I believe personally, that's kind of what got us to the government constructing their first, you know, zero trust mentality model, because they had all these regulatory requirements now that are there that say, if you're a part of CIKR and you get any kind of breach, no matter what it is, you have to report within X hours, right? And that was kind of already there, but then that got us into the software bill of sales, courtesy of solar winds and all the other crap that we put up uh-huh. with the last couple of years. So anyway, I think that's kind of our path is we just had a lot of critical issues that weren't regulated very, very well that impacted global economics. And now the government stepped in to regulate because unlike parts of the banking industry that self-regulate for the sake of risk mitigation on our behalf, to your point, that really wasn't there in my opinion. Well, yeah, I think it's, you know, incentives matter you know it's it's a you know kind of a a trite thing to say but they they do and if you if you you know if we look at at the risk decisions that actors and organizations make in the marketplace they're you know they're they're driven by incentives you you mentioned a credit card you know fraud and there's actually a really interesting case study comparing um the the incidents of credit card fraud in the united kingdom versus the United States. And so, you know, as you mentioned here in the United States, the credit card companies are on the hook for for covering, you know, fraudulent transactions using the card, right? So if you or I, our card gets, you know, hacked and used, we're, we're not liable. Like the credit card company is going to cover that for us. In the UK, uh, it was the, the burden fell on the consumer to prove that there was a fraud, which is hard to do if you're just an ordinary consumer, right? So if you're, you know, your, your account gets hacked and your credit card gets used, your, your number gets stolen and used, you've got to prove that those transactions work. That's really hard. And so not surprisingly, the banks invested a whole lot less in credit card fraud mitigation, including a lot of cybersecurity capabilities in the UK than they did in the United States. Why? Because in the United States, the banks felt those costs in the UK, the banks were able to pass those costs on to their customers, and so why invest if you're not going to pay the costs? That, 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 you know, and I think these incentives problems are are legion, you know, in in, in the cybersecurity world. You mentioned the software bill of materials. You know, there's a there's a classic work in economics by George Akerlof, who actually ended up winning the Nobel Prize in economics for this. Where this article I think was put it out in 1970, where he imagined a marketplace for for used automobiles. Some of those these automobiles are identical in every way, except some of them are peaches. Some of them are lemons. Peaches are good cars. Lemons have something wrong in them. 
And what he argued and I think proved was if you have a market where customers can't tell the difference between a peach and a lemon, what are they going to be willing to pay for a car? Well, somewhere in between those two prices. Well, then all of a sudden, owners of peaches are going to be like, look, if I put my peach in the marketplace, I'm not going to get the full value. Why would I then bother to sell it? And what happens then is peaches get pulled from the market and you end up with a market of lemons only. And there are a lot of people, myself included, who believe that the software market is the market for lemons because it's really hard for consumers to differentiate products on the basis of their security attributes. And when that's the case, you end up with a, an ecosystem of all things equal, relatively bad software from a security perspective. And the software bill of materials is designed to, you know, designed to fix this, right, by bringing more transparency by resolving what economists would call an information asymmetry between buyers and sellers of cars in, in Akerlof's case, but in our case, software. Yeah, so that brings to mind a good question that we haven't, I don't think we've really completely asked in a while. So from a standards perspective, when we think about zero trust, do you see a future, and we're, I mean, the answer's kind of already slightly there, but do you see a future where, from a regulatory perspective outside of the government industry and connections, where the there's more certification paths, more, hey, look at us, we have a stamp of approval, like pick a flavor of regulation, this is our, our, our uh, proof that we've done it, you know, and, and that we claim to be zero trust, and here's what we say it means to be zero trust by X third party standard. Do you see that market space opening up a little bit? Yeah, to, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a growth industry. And I think especially when it comes to systems that also have AI ML components in them, you know, there's a big push in, in, in that space as well to, to audit all algorithms for bias and for other, other problematic attributes. And I'll be honest with you, I, on the one hand, I love the idea of, of, certification and audits because they they help resolve this information asymmetry problem that that you know that i i mentioned you know it's it's uh, but audits can be gamed certifications can be gamed and you know the broader economy as well as you know the it you know part of the economy have lots of examples where clever organizations have gamed audit or where audit hasn't you know, fulfilled its its objectives because of problems with either interest between you know the the auditors and those who are being audited you know as one example coming back to the incentives theme you know, a big problem with audit is if i am a, a let's imagine i'm, a, I'm a, a company and i want to get an audit of my actually, actually let me say i'm a company and, and i have a product a software product that i want audited against some standard right and i'm probably going to pay some third party auditor to perform that certification for me now third party auditors are businesses typically they're out to make money their revenue is derived from doing audits think about the incentive structure here right and the conflict of interest it, you know Auditors want repeat business. If they get a reputation for being too hard, they're not going to get repeat business. So you, got, you know, so you got to be careful, right? Um, and that—that's not to say that all auditors are, you know, suspect. But you know, there is that that incentive problem there. And part of the answer, you know, is, is having you know accreditation, you know, for auditors, training, ethics requirements, enforcement of ethics requirements. But now we're talking about you know a, a bigger, more expensive ecosystem meaning that the cost of an audit also goes up. And so 
you know, it, it, it's, and this is, again, I think I, you, you asked, okay, you know, is this smart to take up? I think the answer is yes, because there's a lot of money to be made, <laughs> you know, in, in audit, especially for people who are selling audits. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, also, I agree. I think Elliot and I are going to shift trajectories here financially. We're going to start our the first official zero trust audit company, third party independent. Nice, researchers. congratulations! Great. Don't uh, tell that to my parent chip company because they'll they'll kill me immediately. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! So I don't really talk about it often, but I do work for Drata, which very much is in that house where we help facilitate the audit process before the audit to mm -hmm. make sure that they're good there. But yeah. this is too timely of a conversation where AICPA actually just put out a signal flare, I think three weeks ago, indicating that not just as you're indicating that there might be conflict of interest between, I think they're calling it service organization versus the auditor, but there's also that software layer. And I, I got to be very careful so I don't get myself in trouble. But yeah, there are definitely organizations who have auditors who actually are connected to that agreement, which that completely defeats the whole like third party neutralized approach. So yeah, it's just a very timely factor. And it's pretty clear that organizations like AICPA are flagging these things too. So there are multiple yeah. conflicts of interest factors in there. But yeah, you know, maybe after I eventually get myself in trouble and get fired, we'll, we'll build up our own zero trust <laughs> audit firm. No, I think, I think personally, I think we're on track to become the next Hacker Valley Media and, and uh, maybe grow faster <laughs> than, than Chris and crew over there and buy them out. And real quick, shameless plug in, not shameless, but purposeful plug for them. If y'all are looking for some fun stuff, just shout out to our friends over at the Hacker Valley Media and Studios. They, they run some really good content and Chris Cochran's former Marine like myself and a Netflix Intel guy when he got off of active duty, so. Anyway, that that in mind, yeah, you know, there's a lot of weird things regulatory. I think it's hilarious. I, I do agree. I, I've seen I've seen auditors come in, and you know, every once in a while you do get the hard butt one that's just like, man, y'all suck, and we're not do you know, you need to fix all this. I'm like, thank you for being truthful. But by and large, most of them are. I wouldn't even call them consultative. Consultative would at least say, hey, here's what's wrong. We're gonna help you fix it, and then charge you for it, and do all this. There are some who do that too. Yeah. But by and large, most are like, hey, here's what's wrong, and if you fix it, fix it, quote unquote, within two days to where we can't see it, you'll pass the audit check, right? And really, what does that mean? You just unplug the device for the next time they run the audit check, and the device is no longer active. <laughs> uh, crap like that. And then they're like, oh, congratulations. And yeah, I agree. It's a weird slope and your mileage does vary but you know i i am i am looking forward to seeing now that we have some government regulation standards of sorts rather behind some of this some ideas around nist for what zero trust means i am very curious to see what the rest of this year holds for for audit companies that one claim zero trust as process flow but two start trying to develop hmm. their own standards yeah. what are those going to look like and who's really going to come out on top as the one who gets the first government paycheck Mm -hmm. Well, there, I look there. There, there's a there's a need for it because uh, you know think think about your know, business partners, right? You know, let's imagine you and I are business partners. You say you've got you know, you know I, I I'm going to be transferring data to you, sensitive information, and as part of our contract negotiation, I'm going to want to know, okay, how are you how are you going to protect that, right? And you come back and say, well, I've got zero trust. I'm going to say, prove it. <laughs> And that's where audit comes in. I mean, so there, there's going to yeah. be, you know, a, a huge demand for this. And as, as I, I appreciate your points about, you know, 
both of your points about you know, the need to structure those relationships in a way that that uh, you know ensures that that you know that the stakeholders are getting good information out of the audit, which much of which has to do with there being like auditable criteria, you know, that, that, you know, we can sort of point to objectively, yes, you either are or are not meeting this requirement. That, by the way, has been a big problem in, in the federal contracting space, especially for DOD. And that, that's a whole, that would be a whole other, whole other podcast. <laughs> no, that's awesome. So I, I think we're kind of coming up on time. So I'm going to let Elliot say his piece real quick and see if there's anything else that he wanted to cover before I take us off on a whole nother tangent. So. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, this is just a really good topic to fall down our rabbit holes in. But I, I just want to bring up maybe a point that we flagged from our last episode, which was with Alana Cohen and Tony Scott, where we talk about national cybersecurity strategy. One of the elements that seems to be a like really critical blocker for innovation at the government level are budgets. So, you know, Having been in those shoes, having dealt with where that lives, do you feel that it makes sense to try the government try to find a pathway? The budget tied to cybersecurity is outside of the realm of that giant bucket that everything else is in because it does create obviously blockers. They put out a strategy. Are they able to execute on it? Not until they approve the budget. But yeah, I'd love your input and your perspective on you know how that functions. Well, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I know both Tony and Alona, and Tony in particular, who was federal CIO, you know, developed this this revolving capital fund idea for federal IT that was was a great idea, and Congress implemented part of it. I wish they would go the go the whole way. The idea is that this could basically borrow against a revolving capital fund to modernize their IT and then pay it back. That would you know, help help them get out of the sort of annual kind of do loop of federal budgeting for IT, which you know, isn't very well suited to make to sort of long term you know recapitalization decisions. Should back up a big a big problem the government has is legacy IT. This this you know this this big legacy IT overhang, and because we you know for many years it's gotten better actually over the last five or six years. And I actually give the Trump administration a lot of credit. They they actually put a lot of work into trying to recapitalize federal IT. And, but we had this this tax that we had to pay to maintain legacy IT outdated, more expensive to maintain. And, uh, you know, this, this this revolving capital fund, you know, which exists, is just in small, relatively small amounts, would, is one way to help kind of address that problem. Very cool. Yeah, I, I've not been aware of that, but I, I love that we're able to kind of like overlap from that last conversation, kind of dig back in. So that said, we are unfortunately at time, but we are definitely going to have to find a way to bring you back your balance between working on the federal side and working with, you know, creative studios that you're at right now. You know, it, oh, sorry. And being an academic, there's that piece <laughs> too. Obviously, there's just a lot of really good perspective here that we, we really appreciate you providing that insight and expertise yeah. with our audience. So thank you so much for being here. We, we really appreciate it. It's good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you, AJ. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to AdoptingZeroTrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.